0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, David Breer. We've just finished recording our new show, and it was a bit of a biggie. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including wise partners with Plaid to give customers access to 6,000 US apps, which is an amazing amount of customization that people can make. It's amazing trends that we're seeing continually in the market of moving from one size fits nobody to to actually a a one-to-one service in terms of what people are seeing. We also covered class Klarna strives for super app status with some really interesting things, some great insights that we got from uh, Yevgeny in terms of what the product roadmap is ahead for for Klarna. And last but uh, no means least, a bit of a dividing one, but one that was definitely everywhere on social media this week, Adam Newman, former... WeWork CEO raises big from A16Z. Super interesting one. Do you back the jockey? Do you back the horse? In this instance, it looks like with a 100 million and a billion valuation, they're backing both of them in that sense. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Your favourite fintech insiders are back in London for After Dark Homecoming. Join us at Village Underground on Wednesday, 21st of September, where we'll be taking things back to the beginning and recording our new show live. You can secure your spot now at 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. That is 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. We look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to episode 656 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Brewer and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Nicole Perry, who is the Global Strategy Director here for Business Design and Growth. How's it going, Nicole?
1: Yeah, I'm good, David. Very well today. Uh, Enjoyed the influx of rain we had in London, which broke up the heat a little bit yesterday.
0: I mean, you were having fun, weren't you? You joined, uh, you went and saw Coldplay yesterday, which I'm very very jealous of, at Wembley, which looked amazing on the videos didn't it so you had fun
1: I did yeah it was an epic experience and Chris Martin is some showman so
0: and there was a special guest wasn't there because like we we talked at our party last night and I was like I'm not going to spoil the surprise because you stayed away from it but but
1: David it may have been a different one than you thought it was who was it it was the lady from All Saints.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. It was Craig David the other night, wasn't it? I know, and uh, Natalie
1: Imbruglia as well. So yeah, we've got a, a whole host of friends coming to the stage at Wembley. This blast week.
0: from the past. It's all good. It's all good. Well, I'm glad you had fun anyway. Thank anyway, you. we better talk to the guests because this is gonna—it's gonna turn into people are like, is this like a music podcast we've tuned into? It'd be kind of weird, but uh, maybe you should try that at some point. But today we are joined, as always, by some super duper awesome guests making their debut on FinTech Insider. We have Jenny Miller. Who who is the head of U.S. product for WISE. Welcome to the show, Jenny. How are you doing?
2: Yeah, great. Happy to be here, David. Thanks.
0: Fantastic. And give the listeners a bit of an introduction to the role that you've got at WISE. And for anybody who's living under a rock and don't know who you guys are, then uh, let them know what you do.
2: Yeah, cool. Uh, At WISE, I help look after product development for customers in the North American market, specifically the U.S., It's one of our fastest-growing markets, and here we have support for individual consumers, small and medium businesses, as well as platform partners who use the wise payment rails for their international needs. Uh, There are three key points that drive my team's focus. The first is ensuring that we build products that work in the local market. Uh, Specifically, it's the U.S. and Canada for this team. Uh, The second is creating better access to finance, and I think that'll be a bit of what we talk about today. And lastly, and probably most important, is providing a low-cost, convenient experience when moving money internationally, and we do that without hidden fees for our customers. And if you don't know much about WISE, uh, some of the background there is we help solve real-life problems when it comes to consumers and businesses needing to move money internationally. The WISE account enables customers to send and spend money anywhere to receive payments in multiple currencies, and also hold and convert uh, multiple currencies and money anytime they need. Uh, it comes with local bank details, a debit card if you like it, and it allows people to really spend like a local from anywhere.
0: Very, very cool. And as you say, foreshadowing the news somewhat, we will come to what you guys have been up to very shortly. So, uh, but anyway, welcome to the show. Uh, it is also a FinTech Insider debut for Yevgeny Kondratev. Did I say that right, Yevgeny? I'm I was terrible with names, but th- that sounded positive, Like,
3: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds great, actually. Thank you so much for having me here.
0: No worries. And you're a product director over at Klarna. Um, tell us a little bit more about your your role over there at Klarna. And again, for anybody living under a rock, what does Klarna do?
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm a product director and I'm leading the post-purchase experience. So in short, we're helping 150 million cloner customers stay on top of their finances, track purchases, manage payments, and do a bunch of other post-purchase actions.
0: Damn, you guys got 150 million customers now. That is a big number. Yeah, it's a big company and we're growing very fast. Very, very cool. All right. Well, we will no doubt come to that in a, in a second as well in terms of uh, what's been going on with the news. But um, let's jump straight into it. The first story that we picked up was one that we covered from AltFi. Uh, Wise partnership with Plaid gives customers access to 6,000 US apps. Uh, Wise has formed an open finance agreement with Plaid to give its 13 million customers access to thousands of apps. Using Plaid's open finance tool, Core Exchange, Wise customers are now able to connect to their US accounts to more than 6,000 apps like Venmo, Robinhood, Truebill, and Chime. The partnership will allow Wise customers to conveniently and securely move money across their accounts through Plaid's API-first data network. Jenny, we definitely should come to you to talk about this one a little bit first, and then we'll get into kind of a more discussion about it. But I mean, this is a a pretty big step and actually this is two very big organizations coming together to do something awesome right
2: yeah exactly it is we're really excited to be able to launch this for customers and uh, happy to see uh, as their usage evolves over time how we can continue to deepen that relationship as well
0: and as you sort of said in your introduction really about the you know making things usable making things kind of accessible for people i mean bring this to life a little bit for us what what does this mean in practice for for consumers
2: Sure. So um, for consumers and businesses as well, we have a couple of typical use cases and really core needs that we were trying to address here. So uh, essentially, the integration provides wise customers with the ability to connect to thousands of apps and move money and often data conveniently between those accounts. So uh, connectivity, security, those are all really important points that we wanted to address with this integration. Um, but from a customer's perspective, you can now connect your USD local account details into any of the apps they choose. Start by just searching for Wise, and then you securely authenticate those two accounts. So, that, so the customer basically grants permission right, for, for uh, those two things. Things to be connected. And then you can use WISE within any plaid powered app from there. A typical customer scenario, uh, what we're observing from early insights, shows that consumers are leveraging a variety of use cases, including peer to peer payments and investment platforms. Business customers in the U.S. uh, typically send funds to payroll companies while global businesses, so those outside the U.S., are often connecting to neobanks as well as paying for things like credit card bills or U.S. taxes in various states, among other use cases.
0: It's really cool. I mean, it's one of those where, I mean, the the promise of sort of the digital age is a much more of a personalized, customized experience in that sense. And obviously, you know, we, we talk about this a lot at 11FS, which is digital banking really sort of led to a kind of a one size fits nobody rather than a, a sort of a personal experience. But being able to kind of engage and bring in features and functionality that's really beneficial to you as an individual. I mean, that that seems like the dream there, doesn't it? But I mean, how, how do you, I guess the challenge with any marketplace, and are you sort of thinking about this in, in it being like a marketplace in that sense? Because I guess discoverability is always the challenge in that sense. So is, is this something that you've given a, a lot of thought to?
2: Yeah, it, we really look at this as the next evolution of the wise account. In the US in particular, connectivity and transparency between different financial services is a key expectation for most people. So, by building out partnerships like this, enabling these local experiences that customers in the US would expect, it, it really helps us bring the WISE experience even deeper into the customer's needs and, and address different use cases that they have. So in order to make our offerings faster and cheaper and and more convenient, we want to make sure that we're tapping into these local expectations that uh, different customers have here. So for consumers, like I said, being able to see and and move money between your accounts really easily for businesses, uh, getting access to different types of functionality in their account, those, those become really important for us.
0: Great, and then, like you say, it's a it's a service for them, then, isn't it? Rather than a you know predefined set of packaged things that you think is the right thing, they can really customize it to them. But Nicole, this is uh, super cool, right? Actually, being able to sort of customize the experience to a, an individual—it's a, a big step forward. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's great, and it's another step forward in the use case and adoption of open banking. And you know, it's something that. We should all be looking at, and all institutions should be looking at. So for Wise to, to kind of really take that to the level of apps that you've got with that connectivity is just amazing. I think if you think about the uh, the benefits, because I think some people don't quite understand the benefits of open banking beyond you know just from the customer's perspective. But we know that it's a far better experience. It's frictionless. It's much more secure for the customer. But there's also far more benefits for the institution itself. Again. Um, much uh, stronger f- f- kind of fraud outcomes, much more secure. Um, it can significantly impact payments costs in a positive way, um, and just that instant settlement of funds is is best for everyone involved in that that transaction along the way. Um, so yeah, great to see that it's a continuous push, and with Wise having such a great market presence, hopefully it will start to open people's eyes up and and be happier to try it out and just get into a rhythm of that being the way that we pay.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, it's an interesting one. And um Yevgeny and, and Jenny, like for both of your organizations, I mean, the traditional view of financial services is like, actually, uh, well, that's an interesting feature, but we can build it. I, I mean, I've heard it from like every IT team in every big banking organization ever. But actually, this type of approach, Jenny, where it's like, you know, uh, we're, like, we're great at these things, other companies are great at these things, integrating that experience from a consumer's perspective. Like it's, a. Uh, I, I mean, I always talk about emotional intelligence in a, in a slightly different context, but it, it requires a, a certain level of emotional intelligence to be like, no, we're cool at this stuff. Those, those guys are great at that. Let's like partner in this sense.
2: Yeah, I can't agree more. I think there's um, a lot of really uh, deep partnerships and a lot of trust that we have built up with those who we choose to integrate into the app. And Um, We've had an existing partnership with Plaid for some time. They actually help us authenticate customers' accounts into WISE, kind of in the opposite direction of of what we're talking about here. Um, As Nicole said, it helps us move money uh, instantly for customers to do so in a low-cost way, and to really offer different functionalities that are beneficial to customers, right? It's not just us sort of getting access to things, and you know not letting the customer take benefit of that too. but the, the partnerships there are really the thing that um, we want to make sure we're aligned with the same end goals. So the partners that we choose and how we choose to integrate are really around making sure that we all agree on the same customer needs, the way that we would address them, the way that we would solve uh, any of those use cases, really keeping the customer first in mind.
0: Yeah. I mean, Yefgeni this is something that you guys are not a stranger to in terms of this type of partnership as well, right? So h- how do you guys approach that? I mean, I, I know I've seen, you know, most recently like Stripe, you guys have done a, a quite a big partnership with in that sense. But I mean, it's an interesting step for organizations to take to to continue to to sort of foray into other areas that other organizations have done really well as well. But h- how do you even think about approaching that type of stuff?
3: I think, as Nicole said, I think it's a great opportunity in open banking is yes, a um, very interesting Way to look at the solving this problem, um, but to be honest, I'm not sure. From how Clarna takes it from the op- open banking perspective, it's a little bit far from uh, where I work at.
0: No worries. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I I always think it's a um, like I say the the sort of. Uh, EQ vibe of organisations that are open to opening up about what they're not good at, or well, not not what not what they're not good at, but what they don't want to be good at in that sense, and actually bringing those things together is a, a kind of a, a powerful message, I think, in that sense, in terms of where the product roadmap takes that organisation and the focus that they actually have on the, the core things that they really want to be great at, and the orchestration of people to come together to provide the the experience for the customer is a, I mean, it's a pretty great place to be in that sense. So, all right, we're going to have to move on though, but. Well done on that. Pretty awesome. I uh, know it won't be the last one of these, and as you add more and more things to it, then definitely come back and talk about that as well. Um, next up, we had a story that was covered over in a bunch of different places, but payments was the one that we picked up. Klarna strives for super app status by helping UK customers track all online orders in one place. Uh, Klarna has expanded its all-in-one shopping app with a new feature that automatically consolidates purchase information, not just Klarna's, uh, into the company's app. So this enables UK customers to keep track of all of their online shopping uh, in one place. With this addition, the Buy Now Pay Later player is seeking uh, to make it more efficient and convenient for customers to manage their online purchases, helping them avoid the time lost between switching back and forth between different platforms. Uh, Yevgeny, I mean, it, it would be remiss of us not to come to you first for this one. But I mean, again, a, a very interesting problem that you guys are solving for people. So, talk to us a little bit more about this one, and and how did this get, given your role, how did this get prioritized up in? I'm sure a you know, 13 years worth of a backlog that you've probably got at this stage in terms of features you'd like to deliver.
3: No, no, for sure. Um... So for some of the listeners that might not know, Klarna has been growing a lot in the previous years, and we now have 150 million customers, and we're always trying to help customers save time and money and give them more control over their personal finances, regardless of whether they purchase with Klarna or not. And one of the key features that make Klarna stand out from the competition has been the post-purchase experience. And for example, for almost every Klarna purchase that you make with the checkout, we show you the image of the product you bought. And not only to make it makes it much more easier to identify the product or the purchase the transaction, but it's also very nice experience by itself. It's much more enjoyable. It's much more personal. And we um, also have delivery tracking features. So we show you your deliveries on a map and we show it to you step by step. And when you need to pick it up, we send you a push notification We we'll help you get the pickup code. Um, and we do the same for returns. So we're both online and in-store, we estimate how long it's gonna take, we help you contact the merchant if you have a question or if you have a problem, and provide a link to return policy and do a lot of other great things. So we were laser focused on providing value to customers in the post-purchase experience. And um, at some point, we just understood that A, we have this great feature that could work for any purchase in general, not only Klarna purchase, but also B, that actually the current way the users manage their post-purchase Journey is not that great and it can be improved a lot. So, I don't know. Let me give you an example. Um, let's say you buy a toothbrush in an online supermarket. And of course, the supermarket and the toothbrush company, they want you to install their app. And we know that customers don't want more apps and multiple analysis confirm that. And um, then, okay, it's going to get sent. So, you're waiting for that. Three days later, you're wondering, where's my parcel? So, what are you going to do? Are you going to open your email, you're going to search for that, or you screenshot that, or you have added a tracking number to your note app, or you find it in the SMS. And okay, you found it, you go pick it up. Then a person asks you for the pickup code. Where do you find that? I mean, some apps, uh, some delivery companies send it as an SMS. All right. But the biggest problem is returns. Okay. You decide to return it, but can you even return a toothbrush? What's the return policy? What's the time window? So there are so many problems that, um, needs to be solved right now and users don't have, I think a very nice way of managing that. And they use different apps for that. And some use the notes app, some just write it down on the paper, some the screenshots. And we just built this amazing feature in the Klarna app. And first of all, no app download is needed because we already have a lot of customers that have Klarna app. So what you do is just you connect your email account and everything is managed for you automatically. So we import all the purchases and we help you manage your other non-Klarna purchases the same way we help you manage your Klarna purchases and we think that it is a great addition to a life of a lot of people and this feature has been live in Sweden the US for quite some time and we have multiple million connected accounts already and we just thought that it's going to be great to take it to the UK as well very cool i
0: mean it's it's interesting and this this has been sort of classified as like a your foray into super app but it's not i wouldn't say it's really that is that how you're classifying it or is it I find the greatest products, you sort of solve a problem and then you're almost creating a deficit in other experiences that you then just solve that problem again. So is this you just solving a problem you've caused for people by exposing how bad experiences are when they're not using you guys to a certain degree?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I just say that it depends on how you look at that. So we just, in general, think that managing everything in one place is much easier and having one app is better than multiple. So because in Sweden, I used to have at least four apps for my local delivery companies, and then I would, DHL would send me emails, and then uh, Schenker would send me SMS, and it was a mess as a user experience. And now I just can use Klarna app to do all of that, and we just think it's a great experience. But responding to the whole super app strategy, I would say that certainly we would want to help users solve more problems with their shopping journey. And here we're discussing the post-purchase piece, but we also do a lot of great things in the pre-purchase journey, the purchase journey. So we have in the cloud app, wish lists, price drop notifications, automatically pre-filled coupon codes, shopping browser, Chrome extension. So we want to become your favorite shopping destination, not only by now, but later. And it takes building a very nice product to become that and the product.
0: is that is that the key then?
3: Because uh, and, and you might uh, you
0: might have to nod here and as not air it on the podcast type thing, or shake your head and we will not air it either way. Like we won't give it away if you don't want to tell you about it. But like, is the way in which Klarna is described as a buy now pay later player actually something that you guys are kind of moving it away from? Uh, not not in a um, like we don't want to just we don't want to do buy now pay later anymore. But almost just that's not what only what you want to do, because actually, I, I guess the the sort of meteoric rise that you've had with that one product. I mean, I think people often forget this, like banks 300 years ago did something so well that they were able to then use that momentum to do like 500 different products and, you know, 50 different departments to kind of get to where they've got to. They just sort of lost their way somewhere along the line, didn't they? So, so do you guys, is your strategy now to sort of really broaden out your appeal given the scale of user base that you've got?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that like. I used to live in China for more than six years, and I used WeChat, Alipay, Taobao, et cetera, on a daily basis. And it's nothing super about these apps, except for the fact that they solve real customer problems very, very well. Yeah. And there's just no alternative to them in terms of convenience they create for your day-to-day life. And this is what we're trying to do as well. We're trying to solve real problems and make it make your life easier, pretty much. And yeah. at Klarna, we don't necessarily get too hung up on definitions, you know. So when we announce a major upgrade last year, for example, we were very careful to not call it a super app, precisely because we don't want to be uh, defined as such and lose sight of our end goal, which is to solve real problems.
1: I think that's the thing that um, I... There's a couple of things I admire about this, but one of it is just the simplicity of it. By virtue of stepping into that customer's mental model of something that we just all accept as the norm, and then the simplicity of... Bringing in the email integration, it wasn't about like building your own transactional data. This, you know, super sophisticated capability. It was about you looked to the side of, of you as an institution, what customers use, and then just brought that in to the proposition. And I just love the simplicity of that innovation. It's like it has such a strong outcome for the customer, but actually, all you need, all you needed to do was use your peripheral vision to see what was out there, to bring it in. And then the second thing that I really like about it is it kind of embodies what we talk about, and David, you and I were talking about a lot about this last week, is that the players that are winning are those that are moving away from providing commodity products and moving into intelligent services. And when I read about this, I thought, oh my God, you are becoming the customer's personal accountant or their personal PA. And it's that that service feeling and that personalised Someone is doing that for me. It's more than just a product. It's more. It's not a lending product. And Klarna's never really be, just been that anyway. But yeah, I, I just love the simplicity of what you've done to enable what is a really, really strong outcome. Is is that what Klarna, you think that is moving into? Again, uh, this kind of personal accountant, personal shopper, per, you know, is personal a huge part of what you
3: do? That's a very interesting way of looking at, at that. We haven't discussed this kind of term a personal PA, but like thinking about this, I think it's very much connected to what we're trying to do. So we're just trying to help as many problems as we can for the users. And a lot of that will be automation. So we're trying to automate as much things as possible. So email is one of the examples, right? That you don't have to add all of these tracking numbers manually, save them somewhere, but rather we do it for you. Uh, but yes. we at the same time would want to give you enough flexibility to allow you to shop the way you want, to allow the to manage the way you want. So we don't want it to be. Um, we don't want to tell users how to use the cloud app. We just want them to go and uh, use it the way they want, and they love shopping right now. So yeah, I would say that it's a real mistake, and I like it a lot. Yeah,
0: it's interesting, isn't it? And and Jenny, I mean, both you guys are, are product managers in that sense. You know, product isn't something that's really generally understood in big financial institutions in that sense. Product is very much a a financial instrument. It's not the auxiliary services that are sort of led around that. So, I mean, this feels like a So almost a continual, I I always say the difference between features and feelings, like you guys are solving for the feelings, the problems that customers really have on a day-to-day basis, not just, you know, well, here's the 10 things that make it a checking account and therefore like, you know, have way with you and, you know, the customer can figure out the rest type thing. But, I mean, how how do you guys even – and I was joking about the you know 18 years of uh, a product roadmap but prioritizing then around those things becomes a really interesting thing when you can solve not just staying in your lane in, in a, a financial institution perspective but much broader than that in terms of opening up so I mean Jenny how how do you guys manage that sort of grooming of your backlog to prioritize solving those problems
2: yeah it's it's definitely a challenge and I think you there's a couple of ways that you can approach it but I think there's a common thread here, which we've all mentioned, and it anchors for us as well on really understanding your customers' needs and making sure that you build up enough empathy to make sure you're asking critical questions, to finding what the root cause of that need, or maybe it's a, a problem that they're having might be. Um, and we at WISE we're operating globally, but we have to do that at a local scale as well. So, you know, here in the U.S. with the uh, releases of, you know, connectivity features or other aspects, these things really come directly from our customers' requests. Um, the roadmap isn't something that like product managers in a room, you know, devise up and we sort of measure and, and say, yes, we're going to ship this. It's it's really based on what our customers are asking us for. Um, the interesting thing is, Uh, again, uh, sometimes obvious statements here, but they're easier to to see than to realize and to act on. Um, Customers don't always tell you exactly what they want. They sometimes talk around their experience or they talk around their expectations. And I think the real benefit to building up really strong teams and having that empathy is understanding, hopefully we can get close to what the customer means, or hopefully we can get close to something that actually solves the problem, maybe in a way that you know, a traditional product hasn't quite yet. Or, yeah, we, we do reach out and we say, hey, a, a partner, can you help us do this better? Um, so there's a bit of creativity that's wrapped up into interpreting those customer requests as well.
0: Yeah. Jason, who, uh, Jason Bates, who, you know, co-founder of uh, Monzo and Starling here, he always sort of, and co-founder of 11FS, always says it's uh, customers are terrible at telling you what they want. They're really good at telling you what their problem is and how they're currently solving it. And actually just doing the thing and actually we we use at 11fs we use jobs to be done frameworks to try and get through those things so and the weird and wonderful things we've seen customers do to try and solve these problems in the middle uh is amazing you know like and actually just helping them unpack that is a, is an amazing thing but i mean how about yourselves uh, what do you do for a a, a backlog perspective is it a, is it a what comes to the top uh, you or is it is it something else what do you mean by the backlog uh, how are you, how did you prioritize this feature over the 10 other million things that you could have done?
3: Oh, right. But I think it's very much connected to what Jenny mentioned as well. We were just trying to understand what's the root cause of the customers need and what, what is the real problem that they're trying to solve and they cannot solve right now. And we've just seen that, obviously, since we're looking at the whole post-purchase journey, we go from the top to bottom. So delivery is one of the first pieces that we need to understand and help users do very well. And then there is the, let's say, making payments, since Klarna has been out by later, a lot the users will need to pay back to the user, uh, sorry, to Klarna. And then there will be the returns and refunds, which is maybe doesn't happen to you every time you buy something. But it's oftentimes a very painful experience that we could potentially help you with that. So I think that looking at that, we focused on the delivery tracking that is not working very well for the users right now. Again, like there is no one single lab that works for everything and then returns and refunds, that is just very painful. And then we thought about what would be the nicest way how to automate it for you and how we can, you know, solve your problems all at once and don't need to ask you to do all of this manual job that you do right now. Very good. I, I doubt it will be the last time we're, we're talking about a feature you guys
0: are, are launching, but uh, yeah, congratulations on this one. We're gonna take a little bit of a break and we'll be back with you very shortly.
3: Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explores series. Weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic
0: into something everyone can get their head around. Such as.
3: On Rampy, Buy
0: Now, Pay Later, The Cost of Living, ESG,
3: Stablecoins,
0: Telematics Insurance,
3: and Inclusive Design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now.
0: All right folks, let's get into the second part of the show. Uh first up we had a story that was covered over on TechCrunch which is QED makes its first African investment backing Nigerian fintech TeamApp. Uh QED Investors, the US fintech focused venture capital firm has led a new investment in TeamApp, a Nigerian fintech that provides business payments and banking platforms. The investment was over $50 million, according to sources, though neither QED nor Team App would confirm the figure. That's somewhat Mysterious, isn't it? In terms of uh, their, uh, they're not going to confirm whether it's over. It was like some sort of game of higher or lower. It looks like potentially with uh, with TechCrunch that they were playing. But uh, QED themselves have invested in twenty seven unicorns and has uh, over more than one hundred and eighty portfolio companies across fourteen different countries. Uh, TeamUp is the first investment though that they've done in Africa. Uh, I mean, this is interesting, Nicole. Every time me and you were on the the show together, there's a a bunch of someone invests in something significant in Africa, and the the numbers, albeit not confirmed in this one, just ke- seem to keep getting bigger and bigger, don't they? In terms of you know Africa really becoming a uh, a major sort of uh, part of the the sort of fintech uh, map.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I might be a bit controversial here, but I mean, obviously, it's a significant investment for the investee. But for the VC firm itself, it doesn't really, you know, you could be could be said that it, it's not necessarily that significant. You know, Nigel Morris is the firm's co-founder and managing partner said that Africa was the final piece of the puzzle for transforming QED into a global fintech specialist VC firm. So it feels like it fits their strategy. We know that emerging markets, especially Africa, are huge at the moment. Um and with the investment itself, you know, that's such fantastic numbers, like incredible run rate, bootstrapped um, for the first, I think it was three years of its inception. It's profitable. It feels like a sensible um, investment to me. And I wonder if we're now seeing a turn of the narrative about we'll stop being surprised about VC firms investing in uh, African fintechs and it will just be a bit of par for the course. I, I don't know what you guys think about that. You know, are we still on the cusp of being surprised that this is happening? Jenny?
2: I don't think we should be at all. And if I can speak from my perspective, uh, as a global company, it's true, our mission is to bring money without borders to everyone eventually. Uh, there's uh, core tenants, of course, we want instant payments, we want it to be convenient and transparent for everybody, we want eventually for things to be free as well. It's, it's truly a global mission. We're with WISE, we're only 11 years into it, but we've come a long way. I think it's important to keep the mission in mind, but also appreciate that, at least for WISE and probably all of these firms, it's a long roadmap, and it won't happen overnight. We have to be thoughtful about the approach. We have to be, uh, as we were talking about before, mindful of customer needs, uh, specific market needs, and that's really what should drive, I think, any company's entrance like this. Um, and... Uh, That will help, you know, make these products more accessible, make these products more available. But it's in that thoughtful and mindful approach that you've got to take that with.
0: Yeah I think I think that's a really interesting point and actually not just on African fintech but fintech more broadly like you say it's uh, where we are where any organization is in the journey of uh, of its evolution you know 11 years is quite a long time if you're an 11 year old child but actually as an 11 year old business you guys are being compared against 300 year old organizations in that sense so and I think this is where everybody gets all kind of uh, you know, um, we've seen naysayers for the last decade sort of talk about, you know, they're never going to get licenses or they're never going to make profit or then, you know, the, the next kind of hurdle for, well, is fintech going to be sort of legitimate in the the sense of actually the impact that it has on the industry? But I think it is undeniable in that sense, as you say. So, I mean, that that's an interesting challenge, as you say, Jenny, to meet changing customer needs over that time as well, isn't it? Because obviously, organizations need to then evolve as the industry is evolving, doesn't it?
2: Right. I mean, you don't want to be naive and enter a market and assume that it's going to be exactly like another. Surely there are common threads across needs. And if we're talking about moving money, in our case, um, those core tenants that drive our mission are, are really what uh, we want to anchor on for all customers, no matter where you are. Um, but I think understanding the market and understanding what's going to solve the local needs there is really important. And that's the aspect that I think is critical to putting, you know, local knowledge on the ground, getting that customer, you know, in front of the teams that are probably going to be building out solutions for them. Um, and that's our approach as well, right? I look after the U.S. market, but globally, we have teams that specialize in different needs and different customer types and different locations across the world. And uh, I think that really helps us with that sustainable approach as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned actually in your introduction that part of your role is like making product fit for purpose for, diff- for for the U.S. market, because actually, as you say, it's very different, isn't it? The, the weird and wonderful things I've seen people do with a, a checking account or a savings account in different geographies, because they're the same financial instrument, but they use them in a fundamentally different way. Like, just presuming, as you say, well, it works in one geo, we're just going to roll it out. That's just not the case, is it? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I, am sure you're going to, you see this as well with different types of customer needs. But one of the things that I'm regularly surprised about is, uh, again, we specialize in the U.S. market here. I'm American. Maybe I know those use cases. And so we, we think we have that down. Um, but it's important not to forget that customers all over the world are using the wise product. And I'm regularly surprised by folks who are maybe from a different country or, or have a different background and they think of something that I've never Considered before, so you know. Sometimes I try to think of myself as a, a specialist in this market, and I'm I'm constantly told otherwise. So it's always good learning.
0: Stay humble, right? Always keep always keep learning. It's a it's a funny one, I guess. I know I'm sort of slightly bringing us back to the the product management discussion in that sense, but I mean. Y- in traditional organizations, the way in which product roadmap decisions are made in that sense is usually, you know, there's this sort of concept of like highest paid person's sort of opinion, which is probably not the bestest way of determining actually what feature gets delivered next, but definitely one I've seen in, in sort of big organizations in that sense. But, you know, hinging everything into customer understanding and actually real problems that they've got can only lead to a good outcome for the consumer, which can only lead to a good outcome for the organization in that sense. But uh, uh, it's interesting, again, Nicole, just to sort of touched on uh, Africa again before we sort of disappear in this sense that, I mean, the the annualized revenue for, for this company was over $100 million. Like, actually, gone are the days where it is just tiny little startups that actually aren't really having Uh, you know scale impact but organizations are at real scale now because you know I know we've said it a number of times on this show before but Africa is a big place it ain't one country it's a lot of them and actually uh, similar to what we were sort of saying earlier on around features being deployed along different geographies and not being specific clearly these guys have found a real uh, a niche that scales in a real way
1: yeah absolutely David I mean if even if you look at Nigeria alone for example which is leading the way in wide-scale adoption of digital payments across Africa they have seen over 800 billion US dollars in digital transactions annualised for the first four months of the year, so it's just huge. And I think that until recently, we it just there wasn't that global market shine on it. And I think it's really great to to see these fintechs being put on the global stage and to realise that they've got to that scale without you know the huge VC inflows that we've seen in other markets. And actually, if anything. We should look to that continent to look to see how they've innovated, how they've raised funds, how they've they've scaled without all this like shininess of the rest of the world that's been going on and the tension that that's got. Um, So, yeah, continuously one to watch. And if I was a fintech founder, I would be looking to connect with African fintech founders to see what they're doing, how they're doing it and what their ambitions are.
0: Yeah. Evgeny, you talked about you lived over in China for a bit. Uh, Africa, I feel like I'm constantly trying to get you to give up your product roadmap, but uh, are you guys uh, Africa on your roadmap here?
3: What I'll say is that in general, Nigeria is a very interesting country. And from the fintech perspective, I think the industry there is booming, but I cannot comment on Klarna's ambitions in terms of next market launches.
0: You've got a great poker face. You really do. It's brilliant. All right. Next story that was up uh, is one that we picked up on Reuters, which is Brazil's central bank chief predicts end of credit cards, which is always quite an interesting one for uh, somebody in central banking to make such a a widespread uh, sort of prediction in that sense. But Brazil's central bank chief, Roberto Campos Neto, said he believes credit cards will cease to exist soon due to the growth of Brazil's open finance system. Uh, Open Finance, a Brazil central bank project that has been implemented uh, in phases since 2021, is where clients authorize financial data sharing with different institutions. Speaking at an event, Campos Neto stated that users will control all aspects of their financial life in one integrator on their mobile app, rather than having many apps for different banks. This will allow the development of cash management products for individuals and for users to choose between making payments with the central bank's Pix, an uh, instant payment system by debit or credit. Campos Neto said, this system eliminates the needs to have credit cards. I think that credit cards will cease to exist at some point soon, noting that some banks have already started to use PIX to offer credit. Uh, to find out if credit cards could really become a thing of the past in Brazil, we reached out to Bruno Dines, the FinTech Insider regular and co-founder of Spiralem, to learn a little bit more about this.
4: Well, I don't think that the credit cards are going to cease to exist in Brazil, but I do believe that PIX is going to emerge as a true competitor to it in the near future. So basically, if we look at the Brazilian scenario right now, on July, we processed more than 1.8 billion transactions using PIX, but it basically replaced cash most of the time. Once we start seeing some of the features that we use with credit cards here in Brazil, in PIX. For example, here in Brazil, we can pay through installments using credit cards. This is a buy now pay leader function embedded on it for years. But PIX is going to have the same function pretty soon. And another thing is when you combine open finance and payments initiation, you can really create new ways for paying for things and it will pose a threat to credit cards. So... I think that once all of that is implemented, we can really see more competition in the space and pigs taking a part of the market share of credit cards, but uh, it won't be enough to make it disappear. Also because the credit card industry is very robust and, and strong in the country.
0: Very good. Thank you very much, Bruno. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, it's interesting on sort of multiple levels, really, that a central bank, you know, there's there's so much of a push for decentralization of financial services, but actually a, a central bank taking such an active role in creating such a system is is actually quite interesting. Now, I can't imagine uh, uh, the Bank of England doing similar in in the UK, Nicole, can you?
1: Mm, I'm not quite sure as they're there as progressive or opinionated as that. But for me, I don't know, I feel that this is maybe a little bit of a clickbait type uh, coverage, because if you are taking what he said in complete literal sense, will credit cards disappear, that's implying that no one would ever use a credit card again. What I find that when this is talked about is it's not actually that the need for a credit card goes, it's the way in which you access that line of credit. So do I think that we will all be walking around with plastic credit cards in however many years' time? No. I think that we will have a relationship with a bank and you happen to have a line of credit and that credit is applied in different ways. So it's no longer called a credit card, but functionally that that product is, is sitting there in that value chain from the bank. There, there's a service on top of it. You don't see that product anymore, but you still access that line of credit. So in one sense, I agree with him. In terms of moving to, you know, it being one integrator on your phone, again, I think that could potentially be the next evolution is that fintechs could own that customer interface and own that aggregation of those services. It might not even be a fintech. It could be like a lifestyle brand. It could be a Klarna. Um, and then actually, all of the products will sit within the bank, and banks will become faceless. So it's a very interesting debate, and one that I love to have. To be honest, so uh, I'm glad that we're talking about it here today. If um, Jenny, what do you think about uh, you know this? Could could Klarna become the replacement for something like a credit card?
0: Well, I was going to say I, I can't help but draw similarities between what you guys have done at Wise, Jenny, in terms of the the the. the the approach, but I can't imagine the Fed coming along and making you do this, right?
2: Uh, Especially in the US, probably not. (laughs) Um, But but yeah, I think um, the thing here for me is you're exactly right. Um, What a current product is today and how it's used is I think the right thing to question, is it still solving a problem? Are there different expectations and how do those things evolve? Especially with open finance, which is, slightly different to open banking in different markets. Really, the way that we would look at this and what I would hope that other fintechs institutions do is make sure that these decisions have a physical card or not or, or grant credit in a certain way or, or not are really to the benefit of consumers, especially in the U.S. where credit is particularly important. How you get access to it, how you build credit, um, these are all things that I think are ripe for just understanding new needs and crossing different market lines, folks have different expectations again. So I think that's just what's real, really important to understand. Um, I, I think, uh, Evgeny, you had a, a comment to make there before I jumped in.
3: Yep, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think the question was around uh, whether Klarna can replace credit cards. Um, I think in general, we see that a lot of younger people, millennials, Gen Zs, don't want to use credit cards um, anymore, and I think personally, since i'm also somewhere on the borderline i'm 26 year old i feel that i just have this kind of i think irrational fear of credit cards in general and credit itself that i, I feel like i might lose control over that and i don't understand that all of these hidden fees and tiny tax and the terms and conditions and it's it's crazy and i think that with binocular later what i like much more is that let's say finance i buy over a long time period over 12 months a tv And even if I open the app 10 months after, I still know that I'm paying back for this specific product I bought. I see the image, I see my payment plan, I know that I've paid 10 out of 12 installments for this specific product and not some kind of credit that I might have on the credit card that will just grow and I'll lose control over that. And I don't even know how it works and what goes inside of that amount.
0: That's an interesting point, actually. A lot of people talk about the buying process for Buy Now, Pay Later, but not actually the uh, the the sort of uh, the debt side of that in terms of like the pay down against it. And I think it really is an interesting point around aligning those things to something specific. You know, when I'm paying my mortgage, like I'm usually sat in my house when I'm crying about the amount about it. But actually, you you know, usually if you're paying down a credit card, it's just a lump of credit. You know, there's no emotion attached to that in that sense. There's no sort of physical or uh, digital product att- attributed to it. So it's, it's an interesting point, isn't it? What do you think on that, Nicole? Is that a... Uh, uh, giving uh, debt sort of attributement of meaning in that sense. It's quite an interesting point.
1: Yeah, when I first started seeing Klarna really come to the UK, um, I felt like it was uh, positioned as a payment choice rather than as a form of debt. Um, and I think, you know, obviously we've been on a journey in the industry and with the regulator and all the reporting around buying IP later, whether it's good or it's bad. But um, I think there's been enough awareness about it now, I would say, for people to understand that it is debt. And that's come through transparency and clarity and an openness from, well, certain by now later players to appreciate that, take that feedback and acknowledge what we've heard from the regulator and the concerns about it. Um, But yeah, it's just in order for that awareness to stay, we just need to make sure that that proposition is positioned um, in a, in a way that people do understand that they it's not just spend, right? It, it is it is debt. And David, I know that you had something on LinkedIn this week saying that the only acceptable debt is housing debt. Um so yeah, maybe you're not by now police customer,
0: yeah. i'm I'm not. I, I went on I did go on to expand that in a, in a, a newsletter. By all means, subscribe, everybody, um, which was um about actually, the, uh, the attitudes toward immediacy that actually we have. I think there's a, I sort of said uh, that I, I kind of think immediacy is a bit of a, a, a disease, you know, in that sense, which is this kind of a view of well, how do you uh, ensure that people learn to deal with not having everything at once? Because I've got I've got an eight year old and a ten year old who expect everything on demand a second after they expect to have it which is uh, is a struggle i have to say for anybody who's a, a parent out there you probably know my uh, know my struggles right now but i think uh, you know even as a 26 year old then actually you are. I'm not 26. I'm talking about uh, talking about you. Uh, is actually um, being in a situation where the world is very different from that of uh, you know from uh, the millennial generation or before that, and then actually being in a, in a world where financial services actually meets to that world of immediacy in that sense. Then we've got to get a good grip on. Um, you know what debt is a good tool for, and what debt is not a good tool for, uh, and it's a it's a challenge. And I I really do think I mean I joked it's like kids in school get taught how to you know put a condom on a banana, but they're not told about like APIs and actually where you know compound interest in and, and like all of these things, and they're they're fundamental to people understanding actually how to live in today's society. So it's uh, it always and ever always kind of comes back to education, doesn't it? And it's. Uh, I think a, a real challenge to get to that, but probably a one for another day in terms of uh, another four hours of content we could probably get to on that one. But uh, uh, there were a bunch of stories that unfortunately we didn't have the, the time to cover, but we probably want to give them a little bit of a shout out because they're doing some pretty amazing things. So, Nicole, do you want to get us started with the the run-through?
1: Sure. Thanks, David. Um, So first up, we're covering that NatWest's PayIt hits a billion pounds um, in process transaction. And this story came from Finextra. So two years after its launch, NatWest's open banking payments tool, PayIt, has hit a billion pounds in process payments. PayIt was the first open banking payment solution launched by a UK lender, allowing businesses and consumers to send and receive money securely without having to share any bank details. NatWest says pay it removes the need for a card for a more intuitive customer journey while reducing exposure to fraud and limiting transaction fees. NatWest is now preparing to pilot variable recurring payments functionality, which is set to replace direct debit, direct debit and card on file payments. So thoughts on this one. Again, it's a really positive story for open banking. I think the fact that this type of offering has been introduced by a heritage bank, NatWest, um, really has the potential to take it to the mass market. And, you know, that billion pound figure um, is really proving that that works, I suppose. Um, it's great for merchants because it really supports healthier cash flow. And I think for me, in terms of taking this away to, uh, you know, work work with um Big banks about how they, they might diversify their revenue streams. Again, it really proves that focusing on merchants could be provide a really positive outcome, because uh, that's what NatWest have done here. They've thought about that merchant customer problem, they've solved for it, and they're they're getting commercial gain. So, a thumbs up from me and a good one from NatWest and congratulations. Very very cool. Uh, next one that we had is UK fintech
0: Griffin lands twelve point five million pounds in latest fund rounding. Uh, So fintech brand Griffin has sealed a fresh 12.5 million pounds in funding to help design and launch a new operating system for embedded finance services. Their latest funding round was handled by Notion Capital, including previous investors, EQT Ventures, and a string of other fintech angels, such as Plaid's co-founder and column founder, William Hockney. Uh, Griffin last launched a funding round in autumn 2020, and since then has been on a bit of an upward curve. The business has grown threefold in that time and has already embarked on an early access commercialization of its banking as a service portal. Griffin submitted a banking license application to the Prudential Regulator Authority and the FCA back in May 2022. Uh, Super interesting. This is definitely not the last time we're going to be hearing about these guys. They're Doing lots of things in the UK market, and uh, if nothing else, uh, on a real hiring tear to bring in some great people. So, but if you want to learn a little bit more about this uh, and more about Griffin, then go check out episode 630 on FinTech Insider News, where CEO David Jarvis joined us to discuss that banking application we were talking about. All right, let's bring everybody back onto this one for the last story, then. Uh, and to be honest, with you, it was, um, it was mean-tastic, wasn't it? Really, the the amount of uh, entertaining uh, pictures and takes on this one on social media was uh, was everywhere. But uh, WeWork co-founder lines up $350 million from A16Z uh, for a new billion dollar real estate venture. So Adam Newman, the co-founder and former CEO of Shared Office Startup WeWork, is working on a new rental real estate business that has received funding from A16Z. Uh, According to the New York Times, the venture capital firm invested $350 million, as I said, uh, and the company is going to be called Flow, which aims to provide a constant housing experience across a chain of branded apartment complexes sort of WeWork for housing, I guess. Um, if you're familiar at all with the the WeWork story, you might have a bit of a deja vu coming in here. So the company which provides flexible office spaces for workers was once valued at 50 billion. Uh, but after a failed IPO, WeWork became more well known for corporate drama rather than the business that it was going on. So it's a funny one, isn't it? I, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I saw coming out from this um, with regards to sort of the investors talking about this is like, I don't know. WeWork's become a bit of a meme, hasn't it? But they were like shooting for the absolute stars. Like they they were building a business that was there to sort of completely change globally how something was done. I think it's a bit unfair to be like, yeah, but you didn't do it. Actually, they were aiming at such a big target that they came up short of that, sure, but have still made a massive organization that's making a lot of money. So, it's an interesting one. I mean, the investors came out and said, you know, uh, as investors do they always back the the jockey not the horse right so somebody with such history of building such a big business is probably not a bad place to stick a bit of money and uh, you know Adres and horowitz are probably not a bad bunch of people to back uh, a good idea when they see it but nicole what do you think on this one is is some of the memes a little bit unfair or is it uh, is it an odd one to back somebody who uh, maybe didn't land exactly where they wanted to with uh, 350 million dollars
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you on that one, David, in terms of backing um, the jockey, not the horse. And, you know, with the the ambition and the vision and the guy who's super hungry and, as you said, changed a fundamental part of, of society in terms of like where we work and that it was acceptable to share offices with other companies when before that would have just been an absolute no go. I'd be interested to, to find out more kind of about what the, the vision and the plans are for this actual venture. Uh, the other side of it is, I suppose it's a bit of a case of he's a bit now of a celebrity and it's showing it's are, are, have we celebritized VC money and you know founders and whatnot? Um, so the question that I was kind of left with was, or, or this yeah the feeling that I was left with was a bit like what could that money have been deployed elsewhere to do with people that are in underrepresented groups mm. uh, of receiving VC funding
0: yeah it's an interesting one I mean as you say 350 million at something that hasn't launched yet with a over a billion valuation can you know that's setting some pretty damn high expectations isn't it in that sense but uh uh what do you think Jenny is this a I mean uh, British people have got this preoccupation with owning property rather than renting it, but uh, the U.S. market is much more open to to renting more generally, isn't it?
2: Uh, for sure, I'm no expert on the rental market or, or frankly, the real estate market. But as a renter in New York, hey, if if uh, if they can figure out how to make our rents cheaper, I'm I'm all for it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, cheaper stuff. It's always a it's always a good way to go, isn't it? Um, Evgeny, what do, what do you think? Is there a is there a sort of a, an opportunity here? You think? I, I again, I sort of think you know Horowitz uh, probably not a bad shout for people to to back good ideas, right?
3: Yeah, for sure. And I think in general the real estate market um, we haven't seen a lot of innovation there, and it's a big market. So I'm personally curious to see what they are working on. And I think yeah, I do hope that A16D. Uh, are backing something that really works and they have done a lot of due diligence on that. So, yeah, I'm excited to hear more news about this one. Very good.
0: Well, only time will tell, won't it? And no doubt we will cover it at some point, but it would be a brave man to bet against them both, though, I would have thought. So, uh, on that note, that does wrap up this week's news show. Thank you so much to our guests. Where can people learn a little bit more about you? Jenny?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, you can find me and more about the awesome work the teams here at Wise do on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't post a ton. So, so actually, if you're excited about the mission and want to help us make an impact, do check out wise.jobs. We have hundreds of open roles here in New York and our newest office in Austin. We're growing and, and we're hiring and we're always looking for smart people to jump in.
0: Very cool. Amazing. Austin is absolutely blowing up. Like uh, a friend of mine, Bo Hartman, was telling me like 10 years ago, it's like Austin's going to be this next big thing. But clearly, like, look what you guys are doing. so uh,
2: We're here. It's it's here. Austin has arrived for sure.
0: Very good. Uh, Nicole, where can people learn a little bit more about what you're up to?
1: You can connect with me on LinkedIn if you search for Nicole Perry. And if you'd like to get in touch with me one-to-one, and I'd love to hear from you, by the way, it is nicole.perry at 11fs.com.
3: Very cool. Evgeny, how about you, in Inclana? Yes, just find me on LinkedIn. Simple as that.
0: Very, very cool. As for me, I'm predominantly lurking on LinkedIn these days, so you can find me over there. And thank you, folks, for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation and want to get involved, you can find us on pretty much every social media or email us on podcasts at
4: 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.